Father, we open your word again this morning at Oak Hill Bible Church. Because, Father, that's what we do. We come, we gather in your name, we praise your name, we fellowship with one another, we join in prayer with and for one another. And then, Father, as you have directed us to do, we open your word. And we sit at your feet and we ask, Father, that through the voice of a man you would teach us. Because, Father, we know that it is your desire, according to your own word, that you would grow us in the grace and in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you have appointed your word as that instrument. And we trust in it. And we trust in you, Father, to work through it. And so we come regularly with your word before us. Father, we pray that you would bless us for having devoted ourselves in that way. You would bless us, Father, with correction, with exhortation, and with, Father, a a recognition of where we can and should live our lives differently. We pray, Father, that you would bless us with instruction on how it is you would call us to live out that life that you have given us in Christ. We pray, Father, for courage, for even what we hear we may not put into action, for fear that we can fail or that it would cause embarrassment or just in some way, Father, that it would not be what we'd want and so we hesitate. I pray, Father, we'd have courage to step out in what we learn. And I pray most of all, Father, that we would have the love of Christ in us so that what we learn would not puff us up but would would drive us forward, Father, into a, a Christ-like life, into being ambassadors for Christ. Give us that heart as well. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, James 1 will move forward from where we left off into a fourth point. Again, if you're counting, if you're taking notes, we're on to point number four in his opening chapter on facing trials. The letter of James never fails to strike a chord with Bible students. I've had a lot of mail in the last week from listeners both local and around the world who are just captivated by the book of James. And I take that to mean that the Holy Spirit is active right now, as he always is, provoking a combination of fresh thinking and probably a good bit of conviction as well as we go through what James has to offer. And I think that's natural because James, maybe more than any other letter in the New Testament, speaks in these clear, simple, powerful ways about issues we all know very well. Unfortunately, issues we're very familiar with. Things like trials and doubts and temptations and even lust or favoritism or inaction. Were, were it to be that we were foreign to all of those things, wouldn't that be great to say we don't know those things, but unfortunately we do. And, and in this letter, there's something for everyone. In fact, on average, there is one imperative statement for every two verses in this letter. Just It's a tour de force of imperative statements. Do this, think this, believe this, have this attitude. It is a book of what we should do as Christians. And today, as we pick up in chapter 1 again, James moves on from his third point on trials, which was about how to remain steadfast as we face the things God brings upon us, these tests that he brings upon us. And now into his fourth point. And the fourth point that we're going to introduce in verse 13 and onward is how to face an inward trial, which he calls temptations. And we can all identify with today's teaching, because if we're honest, even for a moment, we all have in our life, in our walk, a certain set of temptations which define us. There was a man one time, a husband, who walked into a kitchen in his home and he found his wife stalking around with a fly swatter in her hand. And he asks her, what are you doing? And she says, I'm killing flies. And he says, oh, okay. Have you killed many yet? And as she's hunting around with that 
eye looking for the next one to fly in front of her face. She says, yep. She says, I killed three males and two females. Now, that intrigued him because he wasn't exactly clear on how she determined the gender of the flies as she was swatting them with a fly swatter. So he asked her, how can you tell? And she says, well, three were on the refrigerator and two were on the phone. (laughs) So we each have our temptations, don't we? Unique temptations, perhaps. James 1.13 is where we pick up today. And look at what he has to say on the issue of being tempted. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then, when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Now, putting this in context for just a moment, up to this point, James is focused on how a man or how a woman in faith should address a trial or a test. And if you remember when we studied in the last two weeks, James taught that we should attribute the source of all those trials and tests that come upon us to the Lord himself. Because it is the Lord who is in control of all life circumstances. We understand that already. But then James explained that the Lord is about bringing us tests so that he may reveal in us, through the way we respond to those tests, our degree of spiritual maturity. In the same way that a teacher would apply a test to a student to determine the degree to which they've learned something in the course of their instruction. So we are taught by the Holy Spirit living in us and working in us. And then we are tested by the Lord so that he may show the progress of that work in us. And ultimately, when we show Christ in the way we respond to trials, we glorify God, which is the ultimate purpose of that testing. That glory is revealed when that work of Christ in us is revealed. Paul says it in a very succinct way. In Galatians, Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So having been bought with a price by Christ's blood, we now are his, he works through us, and as he does his work through us, and that work is revealed in a test, he is glorified. That's the, the economy of tests, of trials. But at this point in the letter, James makes a departure from his previous teaching because it's important for him to explain to you and I that there is a difference between the tests that God brings us, which are external, things that happen to us, which are God-directed, for the reasons I just gave, and then on the other hand, inward trials or tests, or as the word goes here, temptations, which are not the result of God's work or design. It is not by God's hand that we feel a temptation. James wants to make that distinction because if he doesn't, you and I might make the assumption that no matter where a test or trial comes from, whether external or internal, it's all from God. And that's not correct. But just like the external test, which we've already looked at, the best way to face those internal trials, those temptations that are naturally a part of who we are, is with godly wisdom. And then respond to those temptations using the godly wisdom that is available to us in Christ. In verse 13, James begins with this simple conditional statement. He says, let no one say when he is tempted. You notice he didn't say, let no one say if he is tempted. He said when he is tempted. 
By using the word when, he emphasizes the simple truth that we already know, we are tempted. There is no such thing as the person who has not felt and succumbed to temptations to do the wrong thing. It's a universal experience. It's a simple reality of being fallen flesh. We have temptations. That also means this, though. That means that this is not an academic discussion. This is not some kind of theoretical possibility. Oh, if ever I should walk into a moment when I may be feeling tempted, this will come back to me and it'll be useful in that moment. My guess is that moment is about 10 minutes away. In this case, maybe the temptation to sleep, walk out. I don't know. We all face temptations. Now, the way we respond to tests and trials, whether they're external or whether they are these internal temptations, they have eternal consequences. The way we respond to temptations and trials, each time one of those moments come, whether it's external or whether it's internal, in that moment, you have a moment that has eternal consequences. Now, we've said already, we're not talking about salvation kinds of things. This is not a book about how to be saved. And therefore, we're never talking about consequences that rise to the level of putting your salvation in jeopardy or in risk. That's not even possible. Those are not the points James is making. So when I say there are eternal consequences, we're talking not about salvation, but rather about eternal reward. You have the opportunity in those tests or trials to please your Lord and through those moments, Earn his favor, which he has said in his own word, comes back to us in the form of eternal treasure of some kind, of some form. That means that when we face these trials and temptations, we're at a, we're at a decision point that has eternal consequences. We ought to at least stop long enough as we face a temptation to give that some thought, to ask ourselves, is what I'm about to consider worth an eternal loss? The answer to that is always the same. It's always no. The shame of it is we don't always ask the question, and maybe even if it crosses our mind, we certainly don't act in accordance with it often enough. James is trying to educate, provide godly wisdom, so that we might face that moment a little differently the next time and not put that eternal treasure at risk. So in verse 13, he corrects us. He says, when we face a temptation, we cannot say God is placing this temptation before us as a test because temptations do not originate with God. And he gives us an important principle, or maybe a pattern, I should say, to understand why this is true. Why is it that we can say God will never tempt us to do evil? The principle is because God himself is not tempted by evil. The word there in the Greek, it literally means untemptable. It's not possible for God to be tempted by evil. Another way to say it is he has no experience with evil. He has no relationship with it. It's foreign to him. It's an unknown thing to God. He's not familiar with it at all. And that is why James can say he cannot give us the same thing. Now, let's clarify what he means by God is not tempted, because if you're a student of the word, if you've read the Bible enough, you will have probably thought already in your mind of a couple of places in which Scripture seems to suggest otherwise when it comes to God being tempted. For example, you might remember out of Hebrews chapter 4, Verse 15, you might remember this. The writer says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. Speaking about the life Christ lived on earth, the writer says he was tempted in all things. The distinction here, the way to resolve the difference between what the writer of Hebrews is saying and what James is saying is in this difference. In James, the issue is whether God has ever come to know or experience evil, to succumb 
to a temptation? And the answer to that, according to James, is no. God has no experience with evil. It's not a part of who he is. In Hebrews, the issue, on the other hand, is whether God, in the form of Christ, had opportunity to be tempted and fall. He had the opportunity, but he never gave into it. He never succumbed to it. So in that respect, the two statements work together. God has never known sin, but in the form of man, he came face to face with temptations. He just never succumbed to them. God, as we understand him in all forms, cannot be someone who tempts us because he has no relationship, no exposure, no, no familiarity with temptation, with evil itself. Now, you may also know a second place in Scripture where you wonder, how does this work together? And this one is even more familiar to most of us. Remember the Our Father, as it's sometimes called, the Lord's Prayer? And there's a phrase in there, right, that you may be thinking about. Lead us not into temptation. Well, it almost seems to suggest that he could lead us into temptation, so we're asking him, please, not to do that. And yet James just said he would never tempt us. How do we reconcile those? Well, when we studied that in Luke, you may remember when we covered it then, we said that was a Greek figure of speech. Lithotis is what it's called. And it means to prove a positive idea by negating its contrary. Another way to say it in English, if you wanted to simplify it, would be to say, Father, help us stay away from temptation. That's how you reconcile them. It's not to suggest God was ever in the business of tempting. Now, there's a principle for us in this, too. We must have experienced something ourselves before we can share it with somebody else. That's James's principle. The Lord is not tempting us because he's never been tempted himself. He can't share something with us. He has no experience in himself. But that means that sin in our lives moves from person to person, from flesh to flesh. We share what we know. I'm thinking of the woman in the garden. You remember her story, right? As she comes to disobey God's word and experience sin in the form of the fruit, what is the very next thing she does? She shares it with her husband. And as a result, it moves on. That's the nature of sin. If we give in to evil temptations, we make it a part of who we are. And as we make something a part of who we are, we become an instrument for the enemy to pass it along to someone else. If you're prone, for example, to deception in your life, in whatever form, whether by word or deed, in finances or in some other aspect of your life, if you're prone to that, you are a candidate to pass it along through the influence you have on others. If you gossip, others may follow. If you judge others, you may be judged by them as well and teach them to do the same. If you are undisciplined, if I am unrestrained, if I am uncontrolled, those natures, those seeds of sin become an opportunity for me to pass that along. I'm not saying people can't come up with these ideas on their own, but I am saying we can become the influencer to someone else in those areas. God cannot influence us to evil because he does not know it himself. So God isn't the source of our temptation. So where do they come from? We all have them. We all know about them. They're not from God. Where are they from? James is, says in verse 14, they come from our own lust. James actually lines out a sequence here or a process by which temptations take hold and they cause us to sin. The process has three steps. Understanding these three steps is how we become equipped in a godly way to deal with them. So the first step, the starting point, he says, is a lust that draws us away and entices us. According to Thomas Constable in his notes on this chapter, he defines lust, I think, in the right way. He defines it as the desire to do or the desire to have or the desire to be something apart from God's will. 
Now, we define, we use the word uh, lust far more narrowly. Lust actually takes many forms. We often limit it into a, a sexual context or maybe some other appetite of the flesh. That's how we always conceive of the word lust. But in biblical terms, it's any desire, anything we want to do, be, or have that is not what God's will is for us. And each of us have a certain combination of them that may be different than one another's, somebody else's, because of who we are and what we're interested in. And James says those desires, whatever they are in our life, we carry with us and they draw us, he says, or they entice us toward something we shouldn't have. Now, the words in the Greek in the phrase draw us away and entice us, those words in Greek are really fascinating. The words mean literally to lure away with bait, with bait. Now, fishermen in here, this is an easy analogy for you. When we're lured away by bait, we're like a fish that's lured away by bait. The bait is not the fish. So when we say lusts lure us, we're saying that there's something outside us that catches our attention, something we see, something we taste something we hear about, something pulls us away, entices us away, and it's bait to us. But when you think about it, when you use bait to catch a fish, you're lying to the fish. Do you ever think about that? I'm not saying it's sin. I'm not saying you're not allowed to do it. As far as I can tell, it's okay to lie to fish. But Peter did it. I mean, it can't can't be too bad. But that's what you're doing, right? Because what are you doing? The fish thinks the bait is something good, doesn't it? The fish thinks it's a a morsel of food that if it takes it in, it will strengthen it. And so it goes after it with the assumption that it's good. But in reality, that bait is a danger to the fish, isn't it? It's designed to hurt the fish. Despite the fact that it looks attractive, it's actually harmful. And in that respect, you could say it's a lie. I'm being facetious in a sense. But the point in the analogy is not facetious, right? The lust attraction to something we have in our eye or in, in our view Looks just like bait, just the way bait does to a fish. Looks good, looks attractive, looks like what we've been looking for. We're drawn to it. And in our thinking about it, uncounseled by the word of God, our thinking is this must be the right thing. This must be good for me. If I take on to it, I will enjoy it. But it's a lie. And that lie is what draws us into sin. Because we are choosing in that moment, just like the fish who goes after the lure, we are choosing to accept the lie instead of God's wisdom and truth. It is a conscious choice at that point to give in to a lust in our mind by saying, what I see is better for me than what God's word has counseled me to want. Thomas Constable's definition, right? To want or to have or to be something that is not God's will. So step one is giving in to lust for something that appears to be desirable, but is in fact dangerous, unhealthy, ungodly. He uses a childbirth analogy here. So let's start to draw the analogy out in each of the three steps when we think about the way childbirth begins. We could say that giving into a lustful desire is like becoming pregnant in the childbirthing process. And it's interesting how that analogy works when you really think about it, because when you become pregnant, when someone begins to have a child, they become pregnant. That's the first step of a process, and that process has an inevitable outcome, doesn't it? It's, it's a one-way process, I mean, barring a, a, some kind of problem, of course. We're just saying in the normal course of birth, you go from the moment of conception all the way through. It's inevitable. But the effects of that decision are not immediately visible. They don't immediately change your life. They don't immediately become visible to you or to others. It's a starting point, but it goes somewhere eventually. Over time, the effect grows 
both in the analogy and and in terms of our experience with sin. And it eventually becomes visible to us and to others. And James says, if we give in to our lusts, if we enjoy that bait for a little while, it may seem good for the time being. But that seed of sin has been planted and it's starting to grow. Now, the next step, James says, after lust is conceived in verse 15, he says it will give birth to sin. The true sin of our lives is found in our response to lust, not in the temptation itself. Sin is not in the temptation. Sin is in our response to the temptation if we give into it. That's why it is that Hebrews could say in chapter 4 that Jesus was tempted in all things, but never sinned. Because in the mere fact that a lure, a bait, is moving around you, getting your attention, and you just never go after that lure, you're not sinning because you happen to notice it, because it happens to be there. That's a fact of living on a sinful, on a sinful earth and being a sinful creature at this point in our, our existence. We're going to be tempted. We're going to see the lures. But it's the issue of whether you go after it or not that determines whether or not you sin. I have a pattern I try to follow myself, and I won't pretend to say I do it perfectly, but to use an example of lustful thoughts, which is something I think anyone may encounter from time to time. I hope it's not unique to me. But I can be tempted to a lustful thought by the view of someone who's attractive or by something else. That's not uncommon for anyone, I would think. But I don't sin until or unless I give in to that desire and entertain certain thoughts. Then I've moved past the point of temptation into a point of action. Remember, action can be up here as much as action can be in, in terms of physically doing something. And then I've moved past the point of temptation. I've taken the lure, if only for a moment. And then I have been carried away by that desire and it has conceived sin in me in the way I responded to that temptation. Now, I have a choice from the point of view that we can rely on what the spirit is counseling us and convicting us about and teaching us through the word. And as a result, we can turn away from that desire and that temptation and we can avert our eyes in in the case of a, a lustful thought or something of that sort. Or we can take the bait and we can sin. One way I have heard to avoid in this particular example, to avoid falling into sin is to convert that attention into something godly. So as your attention is drawn to someone in an unhealthy way, before that conceives as sin, take it and use it in a godly way. So in my case, that might be that if a woman caught my attention, I would then turn to pray for her in my mind, though I don't even know her. I'll tell you from experience, it's really hard to entertain lustful thoughts while you're praying for somebody. It's how you discipline the flesh, how you take that lure and turn it around and use it in a godly way as opposed to giving into it. And if it's a a money kind of thing or if it's a time and attention kind of problem or a gossip problem or something, if it's something like that that you find yourself slipping into because the lure is so attractive, find something in your way of responding that lets you turn it to something godly. Instead of a gossipy word, make it a blessing. James compares this moment to the birth process. In other words, the moment in which we give in to a temptation, it births sin. So having let ourselves be taken away by the lure, that's the conception process. Then acting on that and taking it to the next step is the birth process of sin. And then he says when sin is accomplished or when it is birthed, it brings forth death. Once sin is born, once it takes over and has a life of its own, it then takes on a development process of its own, like a child after it's born. And just like the human life has death waiting for it at the end of our life, we have death, barring the rapture. Then likewise, every course of sin, if it's not interrupted, will lead to death. Now, what is the death James is talking about here? 
First, you've got to remember, and this is going to be a continual reminder as we go through the entire letter of James, it's a letter of exhortation written to believers about godly living. It is a letter of sanctification, not a letter of justification, of how to live with your faith, not to become a believer. That's not his focus. So the death here in this statement must be a consequence for the believer. So what kinds of death are possible outcomes for the believer who gives into lust and pursues a course of sin? What kinds of death might he be talking about here? Well, one obvious answer is physical death, the death of this body. It's a biblical principle here and elsewhere that you can go in the scriptures that says God's people, when they choose a life of sin over one of obedience, they are testing God's patience in this life, in this world. And in some cases, God will visit physical death upon believers as a consequence for a life of disobedience. You could call it premature death, but of course, the day of your death has already been appointed. So I'm not suggesting it changes God's economy in that sense. But from our perspective, we see it as premature in the way that God may cut it short for the sake of disciplining or dealing with disobedience. I want you to consider the words of the writer of the Hebrews again. He has something to say on this in chapter 10, verse 28. Listen to these words. They're sobering words, and they're written to believers. He says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. The writer admonishes those who continue to follow, in this case, uh, in the case of his letter, the, the readers were following a kind of Jewish system of sacrifice, even though they had come to know Christ and understood the one and only true sacrifice that he made on the cross. They were still yet willing to go back to their old systems of worship. And the writer is worried about that for their own sake. And he says, if God was willing to put to death members of the old covenant when they failed to keep it, how much more will he be willing to take an act against those who fail at keeping the new covenant in the sense of obeying God in this new covenant? He'll at least do as much. Notice the last statement I read out of Hebrews. The Lord will judge his people. We're talking about what God does to his people when their lives are a train wreck of sorts in the area of, of obedience, in, in, in the way that they are disobedient. We're talking about consequences for the believer. So the first way he could mean death is simply God can take your physical life if he feels that's the, the one best way to deal with an unrepentant, consistently sinning, disobedient Christian. Don't test him. If you noticed earlier in verse 12, we talked about the crown of life, the eternal reward that God holds out for those who face trials or tests successfully. Well, remember, he called it the crown of life not because it was eternal life, that was already in place for anyone who was trying to do anything for God. We're talking about the crown of life in the sense of fullness, reward, life full, a full life of obedience. I think the, word of use, the use of the word death here is intentionally a contrast to the earlier word of life. Those who face tests successfully get the crown of life. Those who do not face tests successfully suffer death in the sense that they lose the crown of life. They don't get it. The opposite of life is death. 
So they may see their physical life cut short and they risk the eternal reward not being available to them because of the way they failed. If you have any doubts about whether this is truly the way God is willing to work among his people, consider the way it worked at one point in Paul's ministry. There was a brother in the Corinthian church who was engaged in a a form of sexual immorality so perverse to Paul that he pronounces judgment on the man from a distance using his apostolic authority, which Paul had. Remember, Jesus said to the apostles, what you bind on earth, I will bind in heaven. That was a statement to the apostles regarding their particular power as apostles. They could make judgments like the kind Paul is about to make here in in light of God's direction, in light of Christ's work in them. And I'll tell you that what he was doing was engaging in sexual relationships with his father's wife. That's what this man was doing. And the church was condoning it or at least not dealing with it. So this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 3. He says, writing to the church, he says, For I, on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you were assembled, and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver this one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. As Paul says, we know this believer's place in heaven is secure. That's why he could end it by saying his spirit would be saved. Good works don't earn our salvation, and we know, therefore, that evil works won't forfeit our salvation, but that doesn't mean there aren't consequences. And what the consequence was for this person, as Paul said, was the destruction of his flesh, which likely meant some kind of untimely death visited upon the man by Paul's word under the power of Christ Jesus, as as Paul says, as punishment, as discipline for his Extreme nature of sin in the church. I like to think of it like a football team. If you want to put it in a different context for a moment and and understand how this works, think of it like a football team where the team, in my analogy, is the body of Christ. We're all on the team. We're all part of God's team. And we're all in this game of life and we're playing a part in the game for our coach, Christ. So coach is, is Christ. He's leading us on. He's training us. He's disciplining us. He's calling the plays from the sidelines, so to speak. And then as we perform in the game, he's evaluating our performance. That's what a coach does in a game. And the team as a whole is striving for a common goal. We're all trying to go to the same place in the same way together. That's the intent of our walk in this life. And our role in the game, listen to the coach, play your part, help the team. But if someone on that team is stubbornly refusing to follow the coach's direction... If that player begins to hurt the team, what does the coach do? You bench him. He's still on the team. We're not talking here about losing salvation again. I want to reiterate that any chance I get because I don't want to send the wrong message. We're just talking about how you help the team. And the best way for Christ to get the team to do what he wants the team to do sometimes is to take people out of the game. Now, he can take you out of the game a hundred ways, right? He can take you out of the game through circumstance and opportunity, removing doors of opportunity for you, removing the chance for you to serve him in some way that you seek after, kind of putting you in the sidelines instead of putting you in the game. But in extreme cases, he can suspend you, if you will. He can take you out of the game permanently. He can take your life, take your physical life. And if you think about it for a minute, it's an act of mercy. First, for the team. Secondly, For that individual who, by their continuing pattern of sin, may be losing ground, so to speak, in eternal reward. They may be forfeiting reward left and right. And in some regard, you could call God taking him out of the game an act of mercy just to cut the losses for that individual as well as for the team. 
I believe God does that all the time. Not necessarily with dramatic taking of a life in all cases. Sometimes just by taking away ministries, taking away opportunities. How many men have fallen publicly in their ministry because of an affair or because of some other problem? A life led into temptation. They're succumbing to the temptation. They're birthing sin. The sin conceives death, and the death may be a loss of reward. The removal of their opportunity to serve God in ministry. Perhaps even worse. Now James offers encouragement. He offers a path here, a course, if you will, away from sin and temptation. Verse 16, he says, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. James says, do not be deceived. Do you see how that fits with the bait? He's talking to us, the fish. He says, don't take the bait. Don't believe it. When the lust calls out to you and says, this is a good thing, don't buy it. It's not. It's a lie. Don't accept the lie. Instead, know the truth. And the good things of life, he says, the good things in life, the truly truthful good things are not found in this world. This world is a gigantic bait shop. But anything that is truly good, in other words, if I'm sitting there wondering, well, what is bait and what is true? What's the lie and what's the truth? James now gives you the answer. Anything that is of this world is bait. Anything that is from above is good. James says every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. And the English here just doesn't do this phrase justice. In the Greek, the words for given and gift are different Greek words. So the first one of those two emphasizes the process of delivering things, giving, in other words, the process of moving things to you. And the second word emphasizes the result, a gift, something you end up with at the end of the process. So a better way to say this in English, these are my own words, but it could be something like this. The giving of good things always originates in heaven, and the good things you receive have all come from heaven. So if you're looking for where to find good things, they will come from heaven, from a godly source, from God himself. And if you have anything in this life right now that is good, then it is something God has put in your hands. It is something eternal. Anything that is truly good is of God and must originate from him and be given by him. Nothing outside God's will and purpose can be considered good. It follows back to Thomas Constable's definition of what lust is. If lust is doing anything outside God's will, then the things that are good are the things found in God's will. From God, by God. Have eyes for eternity. Not eyes for what is here. Not eyes for the bait. Have an eye that thinks about everything you say and do from an eternal perspective. He calls God the Father of Lights. This is a term found nowhere else in the Bible. It is a Jewish term, though. It's found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example. What it refers to is the God of the heavens, of the sun, of the moon. That's what we mean when we say God of Lights, Father of Lights. But the sense of it is the God of creation, right? The God who made all things. So all good things come from the God who made all things. And his nature has no variation, James says. He doesn't shift. No shifting of shadow in the English But the intent here is to contrast light and dark. The point is, you have a father who is the father of light, and in him there is no shadow, no dark. He's all good. John says it this way in his 1 John 1, 
verse five, he says, this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's that's the sense of what James is saying here. We can trust God to be our source of good. Now, on the other hand, if you're tempted to do something wrong, you know, that's not coming from God. You know, that's coming from something inside you responding to lies in the world around us. So let's conclude. Let's review what James has taught here so far. James has clarified the source of our inward trial, our temptation to sin. That's not from God. That's something that comes from within us. The wisdom we need to face that trial is to understand that that desire is a lie. It's forcing us or calling us to do something God would not have us do. Secondly, we understand God is the source for good. And perfect, complete works are those that are done in his will, that come according to his desires, that are in accordance with his word, for example. So let's combine some things we've learned and put them together. How would you propose to face a temptation that is coming inwardly from this desire, this lustful desire? If I look at the letter as a whole, the answer is the same as what he gave us earlier when he said how to respond to external trials and tests. What was the way to respond to an external trial or test? Ask God for the wisdom to face it. He will always answer that request. And in the wisdom he gives you, you'll have the right approach to answering that test or trial. He doesn't say he'll take it away. He'll say he'll give you an open book test. You'll learn how to pass the test. Well, using that same teaching and looking now at an inward test, a temptation, the answer is the same. If I look upon something that causes me a desire I shouldn't have, if I hear something, if I think of something, the answer is pray for the wisdom to face it. How many people struggle in our world with addictions, with continual temptations that are always on their mind and draw them into a kind of destructive pattern on a regular basis? According to Scripture, from what I understand in James, the answer to that problem is a prayer for the wisdom to face it. Now, I'm not simplifying or or minimizing the effort that may be required in disciplining ourselves to hear it and then follow it. I recognize there's a work to be done there. But I wonder how many people even take the first step of asking God, what is the solution here to facing this temptation differently? If you think of a freeway being like the road of sin toward death, God's putting off ramps on that freeway all the time. He gives you opportunities to step outside of temptation and take a different path. And the problem is we're just not turning the wheel enough. Then finally, in verse 18, James says, It was the exercise of God's will. He brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Listen to the power of what he says here. He says it was the exercise of God's will that brought us forth. And the term brought forth in the Greek is sort of a polite way of saying childbirth again. He's describing here our new birth in the way we were born again in Christ, the way we became a Christian. He says, number one, it happened as a result of God's will. He purposed our rebirth. He brought it about. And then he says it's the product of the word of truth or another way to say it is the gospel, the word of God. Like Romans says, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It's that sense. So we are now a first fruits of his plan, the first of many in God's plan to eventually rebirth all of creation into a new heavens and new earth. The church is the beginning of that process after Christ. If God willingly, by his will, not ours, stepped into our life when we didn't know him at all and brought us to an awareness of him even before we knew him or cared at all for him, then doesn't that say something about God's purpose for us, his intent? Paul says it in Philippians 1.6 this way. 
I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ. That's the basis of James's encouragement here. His point is that we should trust God that if he started something in us, then he's going to be prepared to continue something in us. If we can take hope and encourage him in that, it's because we know that as we seek his wisdom and his intervention when we have temptations, we trust that he will answer us in ways that let us deal with those because it makes no sense at all for a God of heaven to come into our life and bring us to faith only to leave us mired in the sin that we found ourselves in as he came to us and to do so even if we ask him for help. What kind of God would do that? So his argument is simply, you know the kind of God you serve. One that came to you when you didn't care for him. One that came to you without you even knowing who he was. Who brought you into faith by his will. That God now stands ready to assist you to live a godly life. Ask him for the wisdom to face those trials. And he will give you the wisdom. And then the the test becomes, will you take the wisdom or will you be a wavering, unstable man? Like Romans 8.30 says, He who he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he... No, it doesn't say sanctified there, does it? Why doesn't he guarantee that those who are justified by faith will also receive sanctification? Because that's the test. That's the test. That's the part of the process in which we have an opportunity to demonstrate whether we are yielding to the Spirit and to Christ's work in us or whether we are going to stay stubbornly stuck with the lusts that we always have had. If we succeed in sanctification, it's only by his power in us. But we still have to yield to that, in my opinion. Based on what James is teaching, there's an imperative to do something with what he has given us or we risk remaining where he found us without spiritual maturity. Father, take us through your word each week as you do with, an op- with, with a mindset, Father, with a, an attitude of how may I use it, not simply what does it say. Father, we look today at your word and we understand that it is confirming what we've already understood in our daily walk, that we are tempted, that we give in to these desires so often, and they are always a lie. I pray, Father, that you would give us the courage to seek your wisdom as we face temptations in the week to come. And then as we come to you, asking you to give us the wisdom to face those trials and temptations, I pray, Father, you would also, through your spirit, strengthen us in our response. In Jesus' name, amen.